0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Paul Thompson. He holds appointments as professor in the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology and the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Toronto in Canada. He has published extensively on evolutionary theory, population genetics, mathematical modeling in biology, Theory structure in biology, philosophy of medicine, and ethics. And today we're going to focus on his book, Evolution, Morality, and the Fabric of Society. So, Dr. Thompson, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, uh, in the book, uh, you focus or basically approach morality from the perspective of a social contract theory so what is that
1: uh, social contract theory uh, has a number of different forms but the essential element is that societies are organized and made to function well uh, under a social contract sometimes that contract is explicit as you would find in constitutions of countries where they've spelled out some of the basic ground rules of that country's social structure. In other cases, they're very informal, excuse me, such as you'd find in uh, uh, pre-literate, pre-industrial societies uh, 5,000 years ago, and uh, their structures were just understood. They were smaller groups usually. Uh, Some societies have understood but not written down uh, social contracts. The uh, UK is an example of that. And some countries don't even have a clear sense of what that social contract is, but they all operate under a set of rules and assumptions.
0: Uh, So um, in what ways does that approach allow for us to understand the evolution of human morality?
1: Um, let, let me answer a little bit about the tradition of social contract theory, which okay. started with Hobbes, mm-hmm. uh, Thomas Hobbes, uh, and had the f- a form that I'm closer to in Rousseau during the French Revolution period, and was resurrected in the 20th century by John Rawls, a name that many people may have uh, already heard. and. That notion of social contract is a way of trying to derive morality by thinking about what rational self-interested individuals would want in terms of the organization of society. So it's more of a thought experiment justifying morality by what kind of a world would people want to live in if they had their own self-interest at heart and they were rational. And everybody knows that you're going to have to make some compromises to get uh, the best outcome for yourself. Um, And so you would begin to trade off some of your potential freedoms and desires for uh, other people satisfying theirs. The approach that Uh, I like comes more from Rousseau. Some people think that it also comes from Hume, but I'm less clear on that. Mm -hmm. And that is that it is not a rational exercise. It's something that over time developed. And you can see elements of it in non-human primates and in organisms in other species other than primates. And therefore, the social contract is a way in which we slowly began to organize Uh, behavior, in some cases directly as a result of the evolutionary advantage, and those that behaved in a certain way uh, passed on that disposition to behave that way, and uh, it became embedded in the population, and sometimes by a conscious decision when you get to the level of more cognitive abilities.
0: Uh, And would evolutionary reproductive success play a role here?
1: Uh, For me, it plays a crucial role because evolutionary reproductive success is what will hone the ability to cooperate and therefore to work together in a contractual sort of way. And in lower cognitive organisms, uh, birds are a a great example. The level of cooperation is low, but those who have uh, cooperative um, instincts, let me call them, or propensities, are going to do better in the struggle for survival than those that don't. So birds that are prepared to give a call when there's danger, even though it puts them at a little danger, are more likely to be part of a group that survives than uh, ones that don't. So even in relatively low cognitive organisms, you can see evolution at work honing the ability of organisms to work together for the benefit of all.
0: Mm -hmm. Are mechanisms like kin selection and reciprocal altruism part of your account of human morality?
1: Yes, in fact, they're critical. Uh, Kin selection is a powerful force, uh, probably not the strongest force in what I am arguing has developed, has evolved. Mm Uh, More likely reciprocal altruism is the driving force. But kin selection means that you do better in the evolutionary uh, struggle for survival if you help kin or they help you. And you can sometimes increase your own uh, ability to pass your genes. Uh, This is a genetically based uh, understanding. place place your genes into the next generation if you help cousins, brothers, sisters, even parents who are going to have more offspring, because the relatedness between the individuals is quite strong. So the genetics that are shared are high. And therefore, when you help a brother to have offspring or a sister to have more offspring. You're actually putting some of your genes in the next generation because you share them with your brother and sister. Reciprocal altruism is a kind of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. So it's a way of cooperating with somebody in order to get an advantage for yourself, but it obviously delivers an advantage for them. And this is the beginnings of working together in a cooperative way that then leads to uh, implicit uh, contracts and maybe later explicit contracts of how you're gonna help each other. And there's nice examples from a mathematical area called game theory, where uh, you can put individuals in situations where they can cooperate or they can defect. And Uh, people, the the game is set up in a way that cooperators do better than those that uh, end up defecting. Uh, If you are a cooperator and someone defects on you, you do the worst of all. So you don't want to be dealing with people or known defectors. So on a one-shot deal in a game, uh, you're Probably not going to know enough to know whether to fact or not. But if you have to do it over and over again, especially with the same people, you get to know who's trustworthy and who isn't. And trustworthiness and keeping one's promises is an important part of the development of an implicit cooperative structure and an implicit social contract.
0: Do you think we already have a full uh, evolutionary account? Of human sociality, how it evolved, and particularly aspects pertaining to human cooperation
1: uh, do we have a, a strong picture we have a We have a decent enough picture to enable us mm-hmm. to um, get the major threads, and I would suggest get an accurate assessment of the various steps in the development of our cooperative so, uh, and social cooperation and sociality. Is there a lot more to be learned? There's always a lot more to be learned. And uh, whether we are in some cases speculating where we think we have, More information than we do, I suspect that happens in every field and evolutionary uh, dynamics and uh, evolution in general is going to be no exception. So we always make leaps on the basis of data and it's up to the community of scholars to keep correcting others who make jumps that seem not terribly helpful or certainly not terribly accurate. Mm
0: -hmm. Does rational deliberation also play a role in your account of social contract theory or not?
1: Yes, um, but unlike the social contractarians that, uh, and here I I would put Hobbes and in the current climate, uh, David Gauthier as a philosopher who's advocated and John Rawls as well, um, they believe that morality is generated by rational discourse and uh, rational deliberation. The view that I'm proposing says that rationality came very late in the process and most of the cooperative tendencies and most of our uh, social contract impulses came from our evolved propensities, a lot of midbrain uh kind of uh activity that was honed by evolution and rationality helps us to do a number of things one to understand that but also to uh hone it and correct it for a different kind of environment than the one in which we evolved so one example that i use in the book is xenophobia Uh, we have a propensity to be xenophobic, to be wary, at a minimum wary of people outside of our own social group. Uh, This served us well in times when we were local tribes and resources were scarce and you wanted to protect your own uh, resource base or you wanted to take somebody else's because yours was inadequate. It serves us very poorly in a global world. it certainly serves us poorly in large societies like the United States or Canada or Portugal, mm-hmm. where there's enormous diversity, even if you leave aside immigration. I mean, uh, my uh, in-laws on um, my son uh, my sons um, daughter, my daughter-in-law, my son's wife is Portuguese. So, I have a sort of sense of the diversity in regions of Portugal, just in language, in uh, culture, and behavior. So, forget about immigration. Even within a large-scale state like Portugal, you're going to find a lot of differences. Xenophobia serves us poorly. Uh, It certainly is serving us poorly on the global stage these days, as far as I can tell. So that's where some rational intervention in our evolved propensities helps us to sustain a social contract, to sustain a functioning society that benefits us all. And it hones our cooperative landscape uh, using our propensity to be cooperative and then trying to erase as much as possible our propensity to be xenophobic. I think xenophobia is actually a pretty good example in the modern world.
0: Mm -hmm. So in the book, at a certain point, you talk about uh, three principles, inclusion, individual sovereignty or liberty, and equality. So why do you focus on these three and what would be the evolutionary rationale behind them?
1: Okay. The ultimate evolutionary rationale is um, evolutionary reproductive success. And I mean by that long-term reproductive success. Mm -hmm. So you can be successful in one generation, but that will have almost no evolutionary impact. Whatever characteristic you have that has made you successful in out-reproducing others who have a different genetic profile has to be sustained over time. One of the ways in which you can enhance your evolutionary reproductive success is to cooperate with other people, and that cooperation shows up mostly in reciprocal altruism, uh, which you've mentioned already. We've spoken about a little bit in kin selection, in uh, the way in which helping kin gives you a reproductive advantage. But um, reciprocity is one of the drivers for non-related individuals. Most of us are not related to each other, but have a propensity to help in order to benefit ourselves, largely. Uh, This does create problems for people who want to preserve a standard notion of altruism, which is that people just do things out of the goodness of their heart because this view says most of the time, I wouldn't rule that out as never happening, but most of the time there's an ulterior motive and it has to do with your own success. Evolution trades on that ability to cooperate and have a genetic propensity to cooperate and therefore enhance your ability to pass those cooperative genes onto the next generation. So once you've accepted, if you do, that cooperation is an evolved propensity designed to enhance reproductive success to make us more successful. So it's self-interested at heart. Then you can ask, well, what other things might also do that? What other propensities might do that, that are secondary, that uh, aren't just as global as cooperation? And the answer there is that uh, inclusion, that uh, working together uh, is better than uh, marginalizing groups of people. Because as I say in the book, uh, life is unpredictable and uh, you may now have some strengths that allow you and a few other people to cooperate and gang up on uh, neighbors. But the tables may turn and you may end up an invalid or having some other weakness. And now you're gonna depend on that other group to help you. So it always benefits to be as broad in your cooperative reach as possible in bringing about your own self-interest. So that gets inclusion into the picture, Mm -hmm. and it's always uh, the case that if you want to maximize your own self-interest, you want to be able to achieve as many of your own desires and interests as possible, and that means you want to maximize your liberty. But you want to maximize your liberty by recognizing that in a cooperative structure, other people want to do that too. And so as Spencer nicely put it, you want to maximize your self-interest consistent with the similar maximization of the interests of other people. And that's the foundation of cooperation, which underpins uh, this moral view that I'm putting forward. And then uh, I think uh, equality falls out as, maybe it's really a third tier, uh, but I've put it as a second tier, as a, uh, equal to uh, liberty and inclusiveness. But it falls out of liberty more than a- anything else. And you're not going to be uh, have maximum liberty if you don't recognize the equality desires of other people and you don't treat them equally, because they won't treat you equally and the cooperation will break down. So each of those three are really derivative, uh, whether it's a a logical mathematical derivation, I'm not all that prepared to speculate on, but you can see the kind of derivation, at least it's an informal derivation based on our cooperative uh, impulses, which are based on the advantages of cooperation to our long-term reproductive success.
0: But uh, it's not the case that uh, societies have to necessarily respect these principles for them to be, I mean, societies and individuals to be reproductively uh, successful, right?
1: In the short term, uh, people can be reproductively successful perhaps even more reproductively successful, um, if they cheat, for example, or if they use their uh, brute strength or their their brain power to outwit somebody else, but in the long run, which is what rational self-interest aims for, it will break down. So go back to the, the example of game theory, if you keep repeating the game, uh people get wise to the fact that you're untrustworthy and you're going to defect if it advantages you the minute you see the the advantage so you get marginalized and become an outcast and we do this all the time we marginalize people who we don't think are playing the game uh, certainly not playing it the way we'd like it to be played and are therefore poor cooperators so in the long term Uh, cooperation advantages you. In the short term, you might be able to get away with advantaging your reproductive success by going alone or in a small group of people.
0: Right. Uh, In the book, you also talk about some social issues uh, like patriarchy, uh, copulatory choices, uh, and individual liberty. Uh, and also overpopulation and extinction. So starting with patriarchy, where does sexual inequality stem from to begin with?
1: I think you can see sexual inequality uh, way down the evolutionary uh, path. Um, Whether you'd call it patriarchy is a different question, but... The dance for uh, control of mating is probably the main initial driver of what has come uh, in primate societies and definitely in human societies be to be patriarchal. And if you take a look at uh, species outside of primates, you'll see that in many cases there is a a jockeying for between male and female as to which is going to control the reproductive dance, and in some cases females do, and in many many cases males do. For males, there's a lot at stake because, uh, and as you go up the evolutionary scale, and more care is required for offspring, the more is at stake. So for males, it's not easy to know whether or not this is your offspring.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas for females, uh, except in some very rare cases, um, very very rare, uh, the female will know that it's their uh, its his or her offspring rather. Right. So uh, he may not know whether somebody has intervened, and especially given that estrus is uh, not as predictable as males would like it to be, though interestingly it's more predictable uh, than we had believed until probably the last 40 years, where there's now all kinds of reasons, uh, experimental uh, evidence, to suggest that uh, we know when females are having their estrous cycle. We know when they're menstruating, Mm -hmm. and that's a part about humans, that uh patriarchy manifests itself in all the rules around menstruation not really because it's a control issue or a paternity issue it's that uh, humans are rare in the animal world in menstruating most animals the blood is reabsorbed so you'd have to live in africa where there are some other animals that menstruate in order to see this. So, humans are different, and that has caused us to feel very differently about that process in human females, and patriarchy has just layered it with all kinds of special rules and taboos and so on. But estrus, which is largely hidden, that is when a woman is ovulating, uh, a female in general, but in the case of uh, humans, a woman is ovulating, that is much more detectable than we would have thought a hundred years ago there's uh, for example a slar- slight enlarging of the um, of the facial features uh, you call it bloating but it's really not noticeable enough to call it bloating uh, there are odors that can be detected now humans are very good at making a mess of all of our biological Abilities by wearing perfumes and bathing, you know, one, at least once a day, and some people twice a day. So we can eradicate some of these, but there is no question that females give off signals uh, that they're in heat, they're uh, having an estrus cycle. So um, the going back to the uh, question about the origins of patriarchy. I think it comes from that kind of control of the female and the offspring and knowing that it's yours. So in primates, you see that the male is very dominant, uh, does control uh, one or more females, uh, fights off other males, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. In the case of humans, something interesting changed when language became available. Because the collusion between males, and you see collusion among males in primates, and if anyone's really interested in following this through, Barbara Smut's paper on the evolution of patriarchy is a wonderful paper, which is the citations in my book, um, where she goes through the various stages of uh, male dominance of the sexual behavior of females and then it becomes more generalized. Once we have language, males can collude more easily and they can tell stories and come up with ideologies and mythologies Mm -hmm. um, and begin to impose them. And that's how patriarchy arose because of mating issues but then became a way of males having hegemony over all kinds of aspects of society, and especially of female behavior.
0: But can patriarchy damage evolutionary reproductive success in any way?
1: Um, That's an interesting question, partly because I think the answer is divergent for... Uh, Primates and uh, other species than Homo sapiens, I would say that the patriarchy would be hard to eradicate and plays a significant role, and so uh, I would be hard-pressed to say it harms that particular um, uh, level of species' uh, behavior. But in the case of humans, we have now—it's going back to xenophobia. I mean, we we have so many ways cognitively. One of uh, the the things that I think you're going to ask me is about cognition and, and what I mean by it, what its role is. But and we'll come to that. But um, uh, cognitively, we're able to think about the way we behave and what propensities we have and whether they serve us well and xenophobia serves us poorly, but so does patriarchy. And the argument that I developed is that patriarchy uh, arose for the reasons I've given and took us up a particular evolutionary uh, path to a point where it was advantageous. But now in a changed environment, uh, the environment I'd say of even the last Thousand years. But certainly, in the last hundred years, the environment is sufficiently different, and patriarchy does not serve us well. And therefore it's suboptimal. And we need to go down the the um, climb that we made to evolutionary benefit, and begin to dismantle patriarchy the way we need to begin to dismantle xenophobia if we are going to continue to be able to cooperate and run societies. So patriarchy is beneficial under circumstances that evolution has functioned for many, uh, well, not just millennia, but probably millions of years, but but serves us very poorly now, and certainly within the last hundred years, and needs to be dismantled and rethought, and our propensities towards it And all the mythologies and ideologies we've constructed need to be dismantled.
0: So before we get into copulatory choices, since you mentioned cognition, uh, tell us a little bit about it. So uh, how do you understand cognition and the role it might play in mediating moral behavior?
1: Well, uh, cognition for me is just the ability to think. And so cognition is not restricted to humans. Uh, humans have higher cognition or cognitive capacities than other primates, and certainly than those in other species. I mean, octopods are, uh, we know much more intelligent than we would have ever credited them for until we started doing research, but their level of ability for problem-solving and thinking is well below uh, anything that humans can achieve. So it's the level of cognition, the level of ability to think and to override. So I would simplistically categorize we our midbrain functions are those that we share with reptiles and all kinds of other organisms. And uh, part of the function there is that the autonomic system where your heart keeps beating, your lungs uh, keep, or the diaphragm keeps going up and down and your lungs keep taking in and expelling air, all of those functions are midbrain functions. But so are your emotions, uh, fears, anxieties, uh propensities to cooperate those are all midbrain function to be xenophobic and they all evolved as ways of enhancing the survival of that particular group of organisms. Cognition came along much later and even in lower organisms that are have some cognitive capacity enables them to make decisions that are not in accordance with what their midbrain would naturally have them do, their impulses, their propensities. In humans, this is at a very high level. So we can uh, decide on actions that otherwise our midbrain would just tell us to do. So uh, fight or flight is a, a classic example that people use we have an impulse to quickly decide to run, or to put up a struggle. Cognition, uh, I I suppose if the time frame's short enough, you're just going to do what you do, but uh, if you have any time at all for cognitive uh, reflection, you can override your immediate impulse to fight, and decide to just walk away, or run away, uh, because you know on balance you're going to do better by Uh, just ending this and uh, letting the other person have some kind of victory rather than trying to fight it out. And that's the role of cognition that I uh, see playing out most in my view. There are lots of other roles for cognition. Uh, Our whole scientific edifice is based on our cognitive capacities to reason and to think Uh, to rule things out, to logically deduce one thing from another or a whole mathematical edifice. So it does a lot more than that. But in my my view of morality, it plays the role of uh, mediating and overriding or uh, encouraging what our midbrain impulses would have us do. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Talking about copulatory choices now, Why is it so common that uh, societies encroach on the individual, on the copulatory choices of individuals? I mean, why should it matter to people? Why other people in their own societies? I mean, who they copulate with and uh, things like that.
1: Well, I I think the answer lies in the uh, possible story about the origin of it. And I'm not sure we know enough about the history of the development of trying to regulate copulatory behavior. But for sure, some of the key elements uh, keep emerging as people do investigations. And one has to do uh, in some of the earliest times with the protection of One's uh, mate, the securing and then maintaining of a relationship, it's a whole lot easier if you can uh, get other people to agree that yeah, you you own this mate, uh, or only you are going to have uh, copulatory behavior with this person, and you begin to write rules that codify that in some way or another. Uh, it begins begins to be more. Uh, perhaps important when uh, you have at stake economic interests so a lot of the a lot of the rules and regulations came about in what I call the uh, elite structures of societies as they developed so let, let's take the last couple of thousand years and the elite in those societies was a great deal at stake in terms of who got this uh daughter, uh, which noble, which king, which whatever, and so a whole aura of rules and regulations protecting, and it is a notion of property, so it goes back to patriarchy, protecting uh, the property and the value of that particular property. And uh, you want to know the lineage, because lineage is important if you're in the elite, I think if you look at uh, poor people, common people, uh, I'm not keen on that word, but since I'm just describing now two classes, and I think societies have so many stratifications, this is very simplistic, but there's the elite, uh, about whom we know a lot, because they wrote the books, Mm -hmm. uh, they ruled the societies, they ran the parliaments. The, The poor just tried to stay alive. And for most of them, they didn't have multi room houses, they had single room houses. And so the story is very different about the development of patterns of copulatory behavior. And you can see that it's much looser in a common society than it is in the elite society. But the elite society wrote the rules and they applied. And one of the ways of writing the rules was through religion. And that's one of the ideological things that language made possible too, because you could tell stories and develop founding mythologies. So the uh, the overall thrust of the development of copulatory restrictions came from the elite protecting their economic interests, their lineages, uh, from uh, dilution or from loss, loss of control of what was going on and those rules once promulgated uh, especially through religious uh, ideas began to be imposed on everybody but when you take a look at the common class of people you'll find that brothels were, uh, they were among the elite too, but they were kept very quiet there. But brothels were much more openly known about. Uh, It wasn't uncommon for people to be seen uh, naked, uh, certainly within a household. It wasn't uncommon for children to see their parents in copulatory behavior because there was often just a single space in which they all lived. Uh, It wasn't uncommon to uh, engage in sexual activity with prostitutes, uh, with other people's daughters. Um, The literature that we have, which is sparse because the poor people didn't write literature and they didn't pass on many tales. uh, But there you see the rules basically as rules of imposition that arose from the dynamics of the elite and the economic social interests. I think in modern society, just as one last comment on that, there's another layer that's developed and that is there was really no meaningful sense of childhood until about 200 years ago, uh, maybe, maybe three. And now there's a great deal of interest in the protection of children and childhood and uh, there's worries about you know if children uh you know, an eight-year-old sees somebody copulating is this going to damage them or see them naked even is that going to damage them all the literature suggests no but all the common perceptions argue yes i mean people just believe it it will and they don't want it to happen uh, they don't want uh, their male child to see a bare-breasted female Uh, don't know exactly what they think the evidence is that this would uh, damage them but now childhood goes on to well 15 16 and there is a sense of vulnerability that comes with our notion of childhood so people are vulnerable and I I believe this is true uh, but they were vulnerable 400 years ago too Uh, they're more vulnerable when they're in that Whatever time frame you give it of childhood, and therefore they need protection. And uh, being paternalistic uh, is probably a good thing. So you write rules around that. Those, I think, are going to be more complex to dismantle. But I would like to see a dismantling of a lot of the rules and regulations that came from the economic protection of uh, the elite and the lineage protection of the elite. Mm-hmm.
0: Does the number of offspring individuals have a matter? Um,
1: uh, yes, it, um, it it doesn't perhaps matter to the individual, and I wouldn't suggest that it should matter to the individual. In fact, I hope, I go to great lengths to try to say that maximizing uh, the reprodu- evolutionary reproductive success does not mean that people have an obligation Mm -hmm. to reproduce or to behave in those ways. Um, So I I think from an individual point of view, some individuals could see it as a great advantage not to have any children. I I actually know people who have made a conscious decision not to have children, Mm -hmm. some because they're very concerned about overpopulation, some because they just don't think that they would do a good job of parenting, and some they just too many other things that they'd like to achieve in life. So the the answer on that level is no, uh, people don't have to, and they often don't benefit themselves or at least see a benefit in reproducing. But the concept of morality that I'm developing Um, is much more of a species or population level concept. And so, at the population level, if people didn't reproduce, then, or certain kinds of people decided not to reproduce, it will change the nature of the species in ways that are not necessarily evolutionarily advantageous, and therefore not advantageous to the species. And uh, to just underscore why this is more population level, in a paper that I wrote a long time ago, which uh, uh, now I would say has lots of flaws, but I probably will say that about this book uh, in another 10 years as well. Um, And it was on the uh, biology of evil, the evolutionary biology of evil. And there I quite clearly make the notion of evil or bad behavior, such as people who are free riders. Uh, That that behavior is destabilizing of the society, destabilizing of the population, and is therefore bad. But it's not bad because it's bad for that person. And it may not even be bad for a particular individual that you can pick out. But overall, in the longer term, it's bad for that population. So I put morality as a population level issue. And the question of how individuals themselves believe they're going to benefit or not benefit uh, is independent of that. It's not divorced from it, but they can make their decisions independently. But if collectively they all make the decision not to reproduce, the effects of that is the destabilization or elimination in the long term of that population.
0: Do you think that there are any situations where social intervention and even social coercion might be justified?
1: Um, Those cases where you're uh, ensuring that everybody is enjoying the same maximization of evolutionary reproductive success or enjoying, if if you grant me that I've been able to get inclusiveness and liberty and equality uh, out uh, from this theory of morality, uh, then people who are undermining other people's liberty, uh, behaviors that are known to enhance one person's liberty at the expense of others, I think there, there's a role for social intervention and coercing somebody not to do it. I think abusers, people who take advantage of the system for their own ends without regard for others, are an extreme case of that. And definitely the society has a role in coercing them out of that behavior or coercing them from the society just eliminating them and prisons are our current way of doing that but one time they sent people to von diamond's land uh, australia and uh down, down in that part of the world but uh today we we use prisons uh we try rehabilitation and that seems to me to be correct but we go back and forth on whether we're very successful in a large number of cases. So I believe, yes, there's a role for coercion, but only in setting up the society. let me uh, try to crystallize this a little bit. The Supreme Court of Canada, uh, a number of years ago, probably 20 years ago now, uh, ruled on a case of a swingers club in Montreal, Canada, a swingers club for those of your listeners who I I doubt there are very many in this category, those who don't know what swingers clubs are, is a place where people buy a membership and they go in and they have public sex or switching partners and so on. Uh, They do this uh, completely of their own free will, at least as best one can determine. So the police typically at that time were just turning a blind eye unless they got a complaint. Well, if they got a complaint, It was technically deemed illegal and they had to act. And they did get a complaint about a person, LeBay, who was uh, running several swingers clubs in Montreal. So it ended up in the Supreme Court of Canada. And they used uh, John, effectively, they used John Stuart Mill's uh, principle of harm. They didn't explicitly mention Mill. But they had two-pronged tests for whether something was indecent and could be prohibited. And one was whether it brought harm to the individuals involved that they could not have known about or consented to. Mm -hmm. And they went through all the possible cases that people uh, ream off about the harms of being swingers and so on. And one of them obviously is sexually transmitted disease, but their view was, well, yes, that's true, but that's true of anyone who has, um, promiscuous habits, may be true, people who have even less promiscuous habits than some, Um, and therefore this doesn't put this in a special class by itself. And then the second second harm is the harm to society. Does this harm the society? Well, I, along with one of my philosophical colleagues at the University of Toronto, want to know who's harmed. This amorphous society is a bit hard to nail down. Uh, specifically, who is harmed? The Supreme Court didn't or didn't worry about that. They just said harm to society, like the undermining of uh, social values or confidence or something. Mm-hmm. But they said a second prong, which was a test that said that the harm has to rise to the level where it interferes with the proper functioning of a society. And I think that's the right level for the intervention of the state that it has to demonstrate that it is either protecting some individual and clearly show that they're protecting that individual, or they're protecting the functioning of the society, but they have to then demonstrate that this is going to destabilize the society.
0: Right. So, just talking about uh, another issue that you cover in the book, why should we care about issues regarding overpopulation and extinction?
1: Um, I guess the answer begins by pointing out that in many species there are built-in population controls. So there are many birds, for example, when the population density reaches a certain point, fertility levels go down. Uh, It's a purely biological uh, mechanism, but it's evolved because overpopulation uh, is bad for everybody. Uh, It's like a story I heard many years ago about Everest, and when there were half a dozen people a year climbing Everest, and they tossed their aluminum cans to the side and they left their garbage all over the place, it really didn't matter all that much because eventually it would rust and decay and so on. Uh, it would oxidize in some way and go back uh, into the environment. Now plastic bags may be an exception, but, um, but even they kind of get scattered and they're just bits of uh, polyethylene floating around. But When you start having 5,000 people every month climbing Everest and tossing all their stuff, then you've got a problem, an environmental problem, and Everest is going to, the mountain itself is going to end up having some consequences from that. So as long as there are small numbers in a population, uh, there are, there's food resource compatibility. There's lots for people to eat uh, or uh, forage for or hunt. But once you start to get high levels of population, uh, you begin to... I, I didn't say it this way in the book, but I would say you begin to destabilize the social structure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would broaden it now to say you begin to destabilize Multiple social structures, if you begin overpopulation on the level we are now. At the United Nations, it's estimated we've just reached 8 billion people on the planet. A lot of people. Um, Now, to go back to your extinction point, uh, so that sets, that frames the issue that overpopulation is a destabilizing uh, factor. But species come and go, they go extinct, they, they they didn't manage to be able to track the environmental changes successfully enough. <clears throat> One uh, contrasting example that shows this in the case of hominids is Neanderthals didn't make it. They existed at the same time as Homo sapiens, but the ice ages uh, were brutal on them, they couldn't adapt, whereas Homo sapiens, they managed to find a thing called clothing and they managed to harness fire better than Neanderthals did. And so the Neanderthals kept moving south as a response to the encroaching coldness, and eventually they, were, they got to southern Spain um, and places like that, and there was very few other places now to go. In small numbers they did make it across the Mediterranean and so on, but by and large they were trapped in, and they died out, they became extinct, because they couldn't move quickly enough with the environmental change. It's another case where cognition helped us because we were able to think about a solution that was cultural. Um, We probably have now uh, overdone the clothing uh, side of things, and it's become an economic, commercially, uh, fashion-driven issue. But at that that time, it saved us as Homo sapiens overpopulation is going to uh, put pressure on us that we are not going to be able to evolve quickly enough to resolve in terms of our genetics. So we're going to have to have a cultural solution to it. And to the extent we can't find one, and it looks like we're not doing very well at finding one, we could become extinct. And extinction may not sound like such a bad things, since we're going to be, everything becomes extinct, every organism we know becomes extinct at some point, but we'll become extinct faster, and I don't find that a particularly appealing uh, end, and that may just be a personal uh, predilection of mine, but uh, I think it's probably shared by lots of other people, but we may be beyond the point of recovery, and climate change is in part a function of population increase, uh, We chopped down a lot of trees in North America, at least, and trying hard not to let it happen in South America, but I understand why they're a bit ticked off, and in North America, we, we did it, became economically successful because of it, and now we're telling them, well, no, you can't cut down yours. Right. Uh, I understand the, the dilemmas across uh, parts of the world, but it's because of population levels that uh, we are doing some of the things we're doing and the extent to which we continue to burn fossil fuels, not just that we do, but the amount that we burn is related to the number of people that need to use fossil fuels or at least believe they need to use fossil fuels, in some cases do. So I find the argument of extinction a powerful one for trying to come to grips with uh, our current mess, but I don't know that I could claim that this is directly uh, attackable by my uh, theory of
0: morality. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have one final question then. Um, Do you think that uh, tackling human morality from an evolutionary perspective uh, would commit us to any sort of meta-ethical stance, like, for example, moral anti-realism, like uh, moral nihilism or moral relativism, for Mm -hmm. example?
1: I don't think it leads to relativism because I claim this is true for the entire planet, that this is the basis for human morality wherever you are, and that uh, cultures may tweak it a bit here and there, so you you will have cultural differences in the expression, but the actual fundamental values are values for all Homo sapiens. It's just the way in which we have evolved that particular set of propensities and ways of uh, functioning. Uh, Metaethics is hard. So uh, uh, is it a moral anti-realism? Well, there are a lot of different versions of moral anti-realism, and I don't think it's any of those, and I'll I'll tell you what I do think in a minute. But let me just run through the the sort of main three that most of the time get mentioned. So, one is non-cognitivism, just to explain that, it means that morality, moral claims can't be true or false, there's nothing against which to measure their truth or falsity. If I say that um, uh, I have a pile of wood in my backyard, we can go out and take a look, and if there's a pile of wood there, then I was telling the truth, and if there isn't, I wasn't, it's false the non cognitivist views uh, that are anti-realist say, well, uh, morality is like, well, not like that anyway. There aren't truths and falsehoods. Uh, morality is more like persuasion that, you know, I like things this way and you should too. And I try to persuade you as to why they should be that way. So it's, or it's kind of a command, you know, uh, do this, not because it's right or wrong, but because Uh, well, just do it. Uh, This is the way we do things around here. I'm not, no, my view is not non-cognitive this, because I believe there is empirical things that you can use, and we've gone through a number of them uh, in this discussion. There are empirical things that make the claims true or false. I mean, there could be new information from an evolutionary point of view that would make things I say in my book wrong. And uh, I've got a lot of biological references in the book because I want it to be based on the best empirical evidence we have, which may turn out to be contradicted at some point in the future. So, there is a way of determining the truth or falsity. It's not an error theory of the kind that J.L. Mackey had where, well, we actually do make true and false claims uh, in making moral claims, because we believe we're playing that kind of a game, and that there is something true or false about those claims, we're just in error, we're just mistaken to believe there's anything empirical that could ground them, and there certainly is no other realm where you could ground moral, uh, moral views. Uh, there's not sort of a world of morality that can be explored the way we can explore the empirical world. So I'm I'm not uh, I wouldn't be an anti-realist in that sense. Uh, and then there's just the subjectivism or what some people call non-objectivism, where it's all kind of subjective, but we understand that we need to do this in order to uh, uh, enable our societies to function and able to let people know what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so none of those would capture what I'm doing. So I would say and I'm not an anti-realist, I'm not a relativist, but I am a moral naturalist in uh, the sense that I believe that morality is an empirical enterprise. And determining what is morally correct and not correct is an empirical enterprise. And that's what I've tried to do in the book. So the ultimate goal of the book was to try to establish that uh, morality can be based on evolution. And evolution is an empirical uh, field of investigation. And I, we either have that field of investigation sufficiently under control that my arguments will work, or we don't, in which case it may be sometime in the future that people will laugh and say, well, they they thought that that was the case in the past, Uh, or it could be the case that we continue to hold the same uh, empirical views that we currently hold, but uh, clever people come along, or maybe not so clever, come along and show that, well, yeah, the empirical evidence is clear, but your reasoning from it is false, and therefore your, your theory of morality or contractualist theory of morality uh, simply won't work. Now, I'm prepared for both of those to happen, but what that says is that it is uh, disprovable or it is uh, sustainable. I wouldn't say ever-provable, but it's sustainable uh, over the long haul if the empirical evidence continues to go the way it has in the past, and if I have correctly uh, derived morality from it.
0: Great. So, uh, the book is, again, Evolution, Morality, and the Fabric of Society. I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Thompson, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show, and it's been a fascinating conversation, and the book is a great read. So, thank you so much.
1: Uh, Thank you very much for the interview, thank you for that last comment, and I've enjoyed it thoroughly, so I wish you success on your future podcasts.
0: Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlites, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litska and Blanchett Perga-Larsson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, and fredrik Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, and Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Ian Rickalendia, John Connors, Paulina Baron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Muller, Herbert Ginty, Surtur Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Narci, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormer, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andref, Thiago Nunes, Bernardini, Alexander Dan Fergal Kuss, and Evan Bodrink, Paula Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Haslam Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T., Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. John Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Deja Araújo, Romain Roach, Dernitio Grigoriev, Diego Antonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Paolo Stasebski, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, John Liniers, Lida Cosmedes, Aymar Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, John Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edwin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Ponce-Cortez, Ursula Litske, Dennis Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackleford, Sonny Smith and John Wiseman. My producers, our Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Luis Keaton, Tom Vegnan, Curtis Dixon, Joan Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidis, Sardos, Francis, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, and Bogdan Kanivets Thank you for all.